I'm Diane Lee, and this is Never Forget What They Did. On March 12, 2020, the WHO declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. In July 2020, the Australian government actively prevented its citizens and permanent residents returning home from overseas or interstate. When we got back, they locked us up and made us pay. These are our stories because we must never forget what they did. Since 2014, retirees Mary and Cubby have been staying in their family apartment on the Isle of Wight, off the south coast of England, spending five months of the year in the UK. They were there when the pandemic was declared. Being in a vulnerable group, they decided it was safer to stay put than travel. However, with Cubby's visa expiring, it was time to return home to Perth, Western Australia and they had to navigate cancelled flights and the bureaucratic nightmare that was the G2G pass. This is Mary and Cubby's story. So we live in West Australia. We live in the city of Perth in a suburb called Applecross, so we're quite inner city, really. Since 2014, we go to a place on the Isle of Wight. The Isle of Wight is a little island just off the south coast of England. It's not the Channel Islands. It's just um, a short ferry ride across. And we go there because we have a family uh, apartment, which Cubby and I have renovated diligently since 2014. And we go there in February of every year and we stay for five months. So it's in effect our home there. And of course, in the year 2020, we booked our flight well before for February. We'd heard about the virus, but we didn't, weren't too sure whether or not it would affect us. And so we, uh, we went to the island and that's where we were in February 2020. Former Prime Minister Scott Morrison held a press conference on March 17 that declared there was a global emergency, but Cubby and Mary weren't across it. Being in the UK, they tuned into what Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock were saying. Well, because we were in the UK, I want to explain that we don't actually listen to live television. We don't have that facility where we are. So what we actually do is we either YouTube things, we either certainly communicate by phone and we use email. And so we do that quite easily. And, of course, once we knew via email and via watching YouTube and accessing the British news that way, um, we were listening diligently to Boris and Matt Hancock every day. He would do a press conference. So that's how we knew about what was happening. When it comes to Mr. Morrison, we only heard that via the grapevine, maybe by an email or something one of my family might have sent. So we weren't listening to Scott Morrison daily or anything. We were just really like English people listening to the prime minister and the health person telling us what we could and couldn't do. (laughs) 
I must say that in the initial months of, say, March, February and March, it was nerve-wracking. I mean, we are in our 70s, Diane, and so we were in what they call the vulnerable group, and therefore we we were not allowed to leave our homes at one point. We, we could only go out at certain times. Uh, then we were allowed sure. to do a shopping centre, but only at a certain time of the day. With that. So we had a car and we could drive. We could get our supplies and we also helped two neighbours who didn't have cars and we would shop for them. So we just followed whatever the UK um, instructions were for people in our age group and we felt perfectly healthy. We were never panicked. So at that stage in March 2020 then, given that you were taking your, I guess, direction from the UK, you weren't planning to come back to Australia at that stage? Yeah, we'd hoped to because we had a return booking for June. We certainly weren't worried that we wouldn't be able to get back in June because, I mean, everyone really, particularly then, we were sort of living from day to day, week to week. You weren't really sure how long, what was it, what was happening, how far this would go. And then we started hearing basically via uh, family members or Facebook members, uh, friends that is, that different folk had come back to Australia from England and we both one of our sons suggested maybe you should come back early and we thought why would we come back earlier a lot of people you know could be like on holidays they had no accommodation they were obviously short of cash they had to go home and where we lived I mean we had strong sea breezes every day we didn't know anyone who had this disease or whatever it was we healthy so we didn't feel an urgency to come back. In fact, we actually thought we'd be silly to go back and get on a crowded plane or from wherever. Yeah, we thought we were safer to stay where we were. Mary and Cubby decided to wait it out until their June flight home. And that's when they discovered how difficult travel was, even before the Australian government's flight caps. In Ma- on May the 8th, we got an email from Qantas cancelling our flight. Right. So that was in May. That was earlier than July because those flight caps weren't um, announced until July mid- or early July. May the 8th, we just basically got an email from Qantas saying your flight's cancelled, but it's going to take four weeks to process from there. So don't do anything. And we continued getting little generic sort of emails from Qantas through May, June, you know, there was one telling you to travel domestic back to the skies type generic emails. So we worried at all until we started hearing about the flight caps and people couldn't get back. So it was in July that we, through a friend in England, contacted a travel agent in England to find out whether or not we'd be able to get a flight back to Australia. And then we read that you couldn't get even into Western Australia, that they'd closed their borders. And I must say, Diane, when you're living in another part of the world, you can't actually believe what you're hearing and reading because it was such a different atmosphere altogether. By July, things were lightening up in England. We, we could meet a bit socially, you know, like it was so different.
And then agent we spoke to, she said there only, she found out that in West Australia, there are only two airlines that were going into Western Australia, Qatar and um, whatever the other one was. It might have been Emirates. And, um, and so we said, right, we would like to try and arrange a flight home using her services. So that's how we started to explore it in July. And then what did you have to do to get home? I mean, how long did it take? What hoops did you have to jump through? What obstacles did you have to overcome? Well, one thing that we were always worried about was the fact my husband can only stay in England for six months because he only has an Australian passport. So we were worried about that. So that was me writing to the British Home Office, explaining that the cancelled flights and we couldn't get back. And of course, they're not much better than our bureaucrats. They take ages and ages to respond. But eventually we got a response staying saying we could legally stay for the for the whole six months, which would have taken us to the end of August. So we sort of knew that. Then we heard that we, through our family, had to apply for what they called a G to G pass. And again, couldn't believe as Australian citizens, we had to apply to come back to our own country. So we filled in the forms. We were rejected three times. Again, we still couldn't, this is all through July. We couldn't believe that we were being rejected to come back to our own home in West Australia. Were you given any reasons as to why you were rejected? No, no. You didn't understand why. So then I did it again and I'd be reading different things on Facebook. And then I made sure that I included copies of our driver's licence, all these things. Plus, our home here is an inner city suburb. It was empty. And I put in all the stuff that my son lived nearby. We could quarantine at home. We had... The home was isolated. It was like not no near neighbours that would, you know, we wouldn't be infecting anyone or any of that sort of stuff. So we put that in our application. And finally, in July, the something or other, which I can't see the date here at the moment, we got a G2G pass. So I thought, right, travel agents said, which date? And we picked the 1st of August. Said, right. So we knew we had our G2G pass and we had our flight back using um, or Qatar Airlines and we'd be leaving from Heathrow and we'd be able to go to WA. Like tens of thousands of us stuck outside Australia, it wasn't as straightforward as just getting on a flight and going home. We had to pay, we had to pay 2,100 pounds. That was for the two of us for the one-way flight. And the G2G pass, which I printed out, so I had my copy. When you looked at, when we looked at the G2G pass and we got to page two, quarantine address was our home address. So we thought that's where we're going. We went up to London, we wore our masks. Now, the thing in England was about mask wearing at the time. You had to make sure that you had about three layers of material and all this and the other, so we knew we'd have to have masks. But the other thing we heard of was that the National Health in England were actually doing COVID testing. They'd use that, you know, those PCR tests. So what we did was prior to leaving on the 1st of August, we drove to the town that has the one hospital on the island and in the car park, 
they'd set up the, the beginnings of this PCR testing. So we then had the proper PCR test. We had to sit inside the car. He was gowned, passed it through the windscreen, you know, through the window and all the rest. And we did COVID test. We knew nobody who had COVID, by the way. It was duly negative. We had the printed results. So we had that with us as well. We had our G2G pass. The travel agent got us the tickets and we'd been to obtain a, a negative PCR test. We did everything we thought we could do to, to get home and to our own house. So we then went up to London using public transport, but masked all the way because we had to get a ferry and then we got a, a taxi up to Heathrow. And then we got to the airport. That's when lining up with the few people that, well, it's quite a crowded plane, actually, the one from Heathrow to Doha. We all issued with masks and screens and told we had to wear both for the entire trip. We put these on and it was a fairly packed, but not packed, but fairly packed plane to Doha. And we were actually really nervous about getting to a place like Doha thinking about the teeming millions. Well, we got to an airport that there was hardly anyone in. And when we went to the lounge to transit to Perth, there was hardly anyone in there. In fact, there were six people in our section of the plane, maximum 40 people on the whole plane. Even with so few people on the plane, passengers were still required to wear masks and screens for the entire 24-hour journey back to Australia. The palaver involved in getting on a flight and during it had to be experienced to be believed. Mary and Cubby knew they were lucky that their flight wasn't cancelled. Yes, we got on the flight that we booked in England to return, yes. But you understood that the original flight we had with Qantas was cancelled. Yes, so that was back in May, May, June. Yep, no, got that. So that was before the flight caps came in, Qantas was cancelling flights anyway. But after the flight caps, you, you were actually okay and you got on your flight and it wasn't cancelled. While getting on their flight to Perth from Heathrow involved a few obstacles that had to be navigated, it was when they arrived in Perth that Mary and Cubby experienced the sheer lunacy of Australia's pandemic response. Well, that's when we hit the the horror that was Australia. I mean, I can only say it was like landing in a war zone. We were so shocked. After that long flight, it's quite a long flight, it's almost 24 hours, we had to be um, herded off in small groups. You are isolated from each other. It's very clever, really, when I look back on it, because when you're screened and masked and you've got to stand one and a half metres, there's, no there's no way for you to ch chat to anyone else or find out what's happening. When you say it was clever, what, what do you mean by that? Well, I, I think now, Diane, on reflecting on this, this all enables us to be vulnerable, doesn't it? It's like being put in a straitjacket or something, isn't it? You can't talk to anyone or communicate with anyone. Kind of like divide and conquer, isn't it? Oh, it was, definitely. So when we got off the plane, 
Then um, we lined up and this woman who was probably a medical person because she had all the stuff on, she said, I want you to take all your masks off and you have to wear one of these. And she held up one of those little blue flimsy jobs. Wherever these other people had come from, again, you couldn't talk to them, but you knew from their reaction they were all equally horrified as I was. I don't want to put on that little thing. Um, Anyway, no, we had to wear it. So as we went up to her, in turn, to get our flimsy mask, I said to her, we've got negative PCR results here in my bag here. No, no, I'm not interested in any English result. So that was my first slap in the face. I so, I I mean, I was shocked. I don't know whether I was angry at that point. No, I don't think, I think I was shocked and alarmed, really. I can't any more than that, shocked and alarmed that she was not interested in a negative PCR test, and she was just so disparaging. We're not interested in English results. Mary and Cubby then found themselves in a futile argument with police. As far as their paperwork was concerned, they were going to self-isolate at home. Police had different ideas. Now, I had printed off our G to G pass. His words were, oh, good, you've printed it off. That's going to save me some time. And he said, and you'll be going to the, I said, no, we're not going to. He said, you'll be going to the such and such hotel. I said, no, look at page two, we're going home. No, you're not. And I said, yes, we've put in our application about how we'll get food supplied by our son, our family, and we can go and quarantine in our empty home. It's only there in Applecross. It's like 15 minutes from the airport. No, you won't. And I said, surely, you know, whatever I said, because I was just so upset. And then he said, take it up with the government if you don't like it. And I remember saying, I will. But that's, those were his words. Take it up with the government if you don't like it. We were then shunted over to sit on a chair and we had to sit on it. Just turned to you, didn't I, Cubby? And said, this is the worst because we'd read on Facebook about the hotel quarantine, terrible food. So we knew that I gaily thought, Diane, with my G to G pass with Applecross quarantine address, Applecross, you know, our home address, I, I just was so 99.9 confident that's where we'd be going. And then they sit you on chairs. The whole process for 30 people or 40 people most was four hours before we were then, because I'm sure everyone got to this, then you're put on a bus and the bus, there were only about eight to ten of us on the bus. There was a woman standing next to me who I could talk to because no one was seeing if we were 1.5 metres apart then because we are standing on this bus. Nobody helped. That's what I couldn't believe. Everyone stood around. They either had guns, they were like what you call border force people or police, And they were all intimidating with masks. No one helped you with your luggage. This woman was struggling. We helped her because we travel light. And there was a young girl. We helped her. She had huge suitcases. And nobody helped. And when you get to the hotel, no, they all stood around and watched while everyone had to struggle. And this woman, this woman, this Australian woman who was coming from France, And Diane, she had her husband's ashes with her. And she said to me, this can't be Australia. I said, I can't believe what's happening to us. I can't believe it. And she couldn't either. So obviously she had been in France hearing different messages like we had. 
She said, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I said, give me your phone number. So she gave me her phone number. And by then we were just ordered to take it in turns in the hotel. We were taken around the back of the hotel. We had to walk up all these steps with our cases. They said the bus couldn't go the, the ramp. They made it as hard as possible. And then when we got in this line in front of this man who must have been the hotel manager or something. He just called you out by name and then wanted your credit card details. And I said, no, I knew not to give my credit card details. So I said, no. And then he said, your room such and such. And I said, and also put down next to room, whatever number we were, 600 and something. Uh, we don't want any of your food. Do not supply any of your food to us because we've read about it. And we had to go in the goods lift, which was all covered in black plastic. And then there was just this open floor and someone in the distance pointing to where we had to walk. Like you had no sense of where you were. Because I thought afterwards when I looked two days later when I could read my eyes were focusing, I could read like the emergency plan. I thought if there was a fire, we wouldn't have known which way was out. Going into hotel quarantine, the conditions and the price was a shock for the couple because they had heard that people were being sent to Rottnest Island to quarantine at no charge. We heard that people um, were being sent to Rottnest Island if they went into West Australia and that wasn't about money, wasn't it? No, that was free, just free, free, so we thought that was fine and we didn't think that we would ever have to pay. We didn't even think we'd be going into hotel quarantine. And then it was being talked about in England. They were going to charge people going into England. And then there was a lot of hoo-ha, you can't do that, wasn't it? So we were hearing that idea of being charged. There were court cases in the UK as well. And um, I think there was a lot of pushback. But here in Australia, basically everyone rolled over. No one pushed back. No one. And the other thing was in Western Australia, see, we had booked... On July the 6th is our official booking date to come back, even though we came back on the 1st. Our beautiful Premier, he got up and said something. He was going to backdate it for when people would have to pay the fees to July the 17th, which we thought we couldn't believe it. Heard that on the news when we were in a hotel room hearing TV for the first time. And we were listening and we couldn't believe the news. We couldn't believe that he could backdate something. And we thought, well, July, we booked ours on July the 6th, so we still won't have to pay. So when he said he was going to backdate the, the charging date for the fee was July the 17th, because we booked our flight on July the 6th, we thought, well, it won't apply to us. That's what we thought. We were just naive. And then we um, we just focused on uh, getting food. Our son brought us food. Uh, one Another friend sent in a microwave so we could heat up food. Uh, we only travelled light, so my husband didn't have any medications, so we had to ring the hotel people to get um, his medications brought into the hotel. There was somebody coughing outside our room when we first got there. The first night, the second night, I could hear whoever was outside was coughing. But then I'd read, you get COVID in the hotels. So I rang and I said, I don't want someone coughing outside our room. I said, we don't have COVID and we don't want to get it in your hotel. Third day, I thought, oh, there's nothing happening. So I put my screen on and I walked outside the door. And there was a little fellow sitting on the floor playing with his mobile phone. 
So I said, are you the guard? Are you the security guard? And he said, oh, yes, I am. I said, well, who are you working for? And why aren't you wearing a mask? Which he wasn't. Anyway, he said, you're not supposed to be outside your room. I said, well, I'm wearing this screen. I'm all right. And I don't have COVID. And I walked back in. Well, within half an hour, up comes the security telling me that basically that I shouldn't go outside my room. And I just said, well, I was just checking if anyone was coughing. Anyway, and then within an hour, maybe, two police arrived at the door, all in their gear, saying we believe there's been an incident. So I just said to them, you're not intimidating me like that. I was so angry. I, that's when I really got angry because I realised this is all absolutely ludicrous. I said, you are the first person, this is the policeman, who's spoken to us in three days. Why are we here? We should be home. We've got an empty home. This is ridiculous. You know? And that's when I started to be in your camp. I got angrier and angrier. So I um, I spoke to the lady, that the French lady, um, by phone, and she'd had some very, very low days, because you can imagine. Because she went overseas to get her husband's ashes, is that right? No, Diane, they lived, they were living in France for so many years, and he had just died, and a son living in Albany, which is a five-hour drive from Perth, he said to her, look, why don't you, you know, or she must have decided to bring her husband's ashes back. She still had a house in France and was possibly going to go back there because she had a dog there, didn't she? She had his ashes and had brought them back. But the thing with her was, and the girl, I think we had her number, she said she'd been sick after eating the food. So as I say, what they did to us, and the same with you, I'm sure, is they took a test, a COVID test day two or three. When I asked for the results, another reason I got angry, they said, oh, no, you're not entitled to have the results, which I could not believe. When we get to the end of the imprisonment, we get tested again and then they tell you they're going to let you out after they do another check. The French lady, which is why I'm mentioning it, um, they asked us a whole list of questions. Have you got a headache? Have you got this, that and the other? Anyway, she rang me and she was crying because when they went to her room, one of the questions was, have you got any aches or pains? And she said, I have in my hip. And they said, oh, well, that means you'll be staying for another 24 hours. And she said to me, I said to them, no, 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 that's just my arthritis. No, we've ticked the box, so you're going to. So she was in tears thinking she'd have to stay for another day. Her son had driven up a five-hour drive to meet her. I then rang downstairs and I just went right off to the staff and said, if you let that woman out, I'm going to make a really big fuss here. She got out, but not quite at the same time as we did, I believe, because she contacted me later. So again, it's just an example of the disgusting behaviour and treatment that we received by these people. There had been a number of suicides and sexual assaults in hotel quarantine. With the duty of care owing towards the incarcerated, hotels were supposed to call and do a welfare check at least once per day. This wasn't my experience, nor Mary and Cubby's. Remember, we were being charged $3,000 plus by the government for our own detention. It was only when we left, because again, they wouldn't let you leave until you signed something. And I said, I'm not signing anything. But it wasn't for months before we got an invoice. And what happened when you received that invoice? What, what, what were you thinking? 
well, I was going through the roof. Now I'm a person a little bit like you, where, you know, you write it all down and I just started. And the very fact it was presented to us with the words tax invoice, that was the first chapter of my response because I said, this isn't a tax. It's not an invoice. An invoice is something that you pay and agree for goods and services. We've done neither. You can't present this. And it's not itemized. I went through all of that. But, of course, I got nowhere. Nobody responds to you, basically. It's interesting that Western Australia issued a tax invoice to try and recoup the fee. In Air Caledonia, International and the Commonwealth, the High Court found that Australian citizens could not be charged a tax or fee to re-enter the country. Of course, no one has been able to get the states into court to test how this precedent applies to hotel quarantine fees. I should think everybody in WA got the same piece of paper. It's a government of West Australia Department of Health and it says tax invoice and then just gives you the one figure. And I got a letter from the manager, which I insisted on, stating that we hadn't consumed any food or anything on the premises, which we didn't. That won't matter. You'll still have to pay. I said, I'm not paying and I want that letter and he sent it to me. So I've got that. But whatever letters I've sent and I've sent some doozies, I've got copies of, they never, ever respond. So what happened was they then go from that to sending debt collectors. Right, yeah, Milton Graham, I believe, who are the same debt collectors that the government has used for robo-debt. What we did then was the one person who sent me the invoice who was at the health department, I said, I know what we'll do. We'll go in and see them. So in we went, unannounced, and out he came. He was a typical uh, public servant. He took us into like a little staff cafe where I had my folder and I said, why have you not responded to my letter in over 12 months and yet you've given details to a debt collector? Oh, well, it's it's not anything to, to do with me anymore. And he looked sort of cursorily, looked through my papers. And he, he said, well, you'll have to take it up with the new people, the State Health Incident Control Centre. It's definitely yes, minister all over again. And I said, I'm not taking up with anyone. I'm not providing any more evidence. I've given you all our evidence and I expect you to sort it out. And I said, well, of course, nothing ever happened. And eventually the, the debt collectors stopped, haven't they? We haven't had one for ages. And I've had a couple more letters from them again where I just say categorically, we're not paying, the government can pay. Our Premier tore up all the invoices from New South Wales on the television. We have had a financial cost, um, but the the biggest thing for us is is emotional. And neither of us have got any patience for anyone now. I'm very short-tempered. I get angry. I haven't been to a psychiatrist or anything. I refuse to do that. But um, also very distrustful of the government. I suspect everything. Like, I don't trust anything. The saddest thing was is the fact that it's divided this country. It's divided the states. It's divided families. It's divided communities. And unless you personally either went through the quarantine process or knew someone who did, most people have no understanding of what happened at all. They think it's all gone away and it was something they saw on a news. Well, 
While premiers and chief ministers were enjoying how much power had been handed to them by the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison and how much control they had over their states and territories, the Australian public were not empathetic to our plight. One thing was we, we felt estranged from so many people, things we couldn't ever mention. But the other thing is it did lead me to explore other sources of information apart from things on YouTube. That's how I found like unheard talk radio. Um, lots of people don't like um, what's his name, no, Alan okay. Jones. But at least on this topic, he and I were on the same page. And Dr. John Campbell, I listen to. He's really good on YouTube. He does some really good things about the virus and the really good intelligent people about viruses. And that was that great Barrington declaration that uh, Sunatra Gupta she was the one from Oxford wasn't she yeah Gigi Foster she's an economist with Melbourne University I think and she was saying what are you people doing and she went on a Q&A I think once or twice and she was basically almost booed off stage because she's saying where are the cost benefit analysis with all these lockdown stuff I mean she was talking a lot of sense and she was fantastic and same with Sanjeev Sublot in Victoria he ended up signing from the government actually John um, Anderson his podcast the good thing was it showed you how the general media here in Australia is appalling. They just were making mileage out of it or they were using their own personal fears to guide what they said. So if our state premiers happen to be a fearful, natural person who are fearful of things health-wise, they, they projected all of that onto all of us. And of course here, it's just one person. He's controlling everything. We had half the state shut down for one person. People in the UK couldn't believe it. It's been too political all round, the whole thing. And now there are reviews and, and so forth, analysis in other countries. Australia hasn't got there yet. We understand now the vested interests that were in all of this. The same would be here. They, they demonised us totally and they brought out the worst in people. They set people against each other. I mean, I've got a friend who was in Queensland trying to get home with her caravan and she said people were locking other number plates out of caravan parks or throwing eggs at them and things. Like, I mean, it brought out animal behaviours in people and, and the government and the media were really fostering this and encouraging it. Very disappointed in Australia. I think it's brought out the absolute worst in people. And I, I stand by my statement, it'll go down in history as the, as the worst treatment of its own citizens by you know, an Australian government. I just think they're appalling to us. And it just shows you the calibre of the politicians we have and the fact that in the future... Um, when there is another one of these things, it has to be done properly and not by politicians. Well, they were covering something up and the covering up to do with the Wuhan lab, isn't it? And the investment of the money, lots of countries into that lab and that Fauci guy was up to his minute. So I think there was such a lot of corruption so far up the food chain. That's what controlled it all because that film pandemic which was brought out in 2000 and I think we worked back when it was actually made everything that happened in 2019-20 is what was predicted to happen way back so we now know so much more so 
I'm just flabbergasted like you are by it all, but. We've been to England and I've been back twice this year. We are those people that we do not like wearing masks. We still have had COVID. We don't know anyone who's had it. It's just like, how dare they treat us like that and make us pay? If you have to have quarantine facilities, they should be purpose-built. I mean, not having an opening window, that was the worst aspect for me. And I don't think they realise some politicians here must think that they're so wonderful that people outside of Australia listen to them or think they're wonderful. But actually, the overall impression from anyone I've spoken to, including little villages in Wales, is, ooh, that's that place where they lock everyone up. Writing to politicians proved to be a fruitless exercise and without human rights embedded in domestic law, lawyers weren't willing to take cases. It is like to human rights groups and, and I even wrote to old Jeffrey Robinson, but of course they've all been, well, he did come out and say you can't, you must let your own citizens home. I think he did do that. But the legal side have just been so wanting as well, haven't they? What is the message that you would like to send to the Australian government and Australians generally about all this? You know, the message to them is that they've divided the country and brought out the worst. That's the message of what they've done. And and as I said, a shameful period where they treat the citizens. But in the future, and there will be another one, they need to set up proper quarantine facilities should they ever be needed. And it should be apolitical. Don't demonise vulnerable people, which is what they did. The Never Forget What They Did podcast tells our stories because what was done to us should never be forgotten. Music by Les FM on Pixabay. Our stories are released every week on a Sunday. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on dianelee.com.au forward slash never forget.